The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Javante, Jacob, Katia, Andrew, Tia, Violet, Dustin, Shahizi, and the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back to Armchair Politics as we enter uh, the second half of our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner Program. Joining me for this Christmas Eve Eve edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes roundtable regulars on the left, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Oh, good to be here. On the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. Henry, welcome back. Thank, thank you, Paul. Uh, I mean, Tom. And last but not least, Politico Emeritus Woodrow Stanley joining us this week. Welcome back, Wood. Thank you. And where did I leave off? Ah, here we are. The I Michi- thought you left Henry trying to explain that last. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he got he got he got his word in. Um, and and this it, so far the first hour went pretty well. I haven't had to cut henry or wood off at all um the michigan senate voted uh, through a 465 million dollar plan to fund additional covid19 response vaccine distribution and stimulus payments for workers and businesses impacted by the pandemic late friday evening the package um i think this has been updated that uh, gretchen whitmer has signed this Um, The plan uh, would put state and federal funds toward a combination of direct aid to unemployment workers, or unemployed workers, I'm sorry, and hardest-hit businesses as well as pandemic response efforts in the state health department and health care industry. Why $465 million? Um, How do they come up with that figure? Negotiation. I mean, obviously... Yeah, it, it, you you have the policy folks uh, from both caucuses come up with uh, a working number, 
and then you it's negotiations between the two caucuses and and the administration and there you go there's no science to the number i can assure you i mean you know you're not going to find anything that says this number actually takes care of all of these issues that are referenced in this um bill that that doesn't exist this is pure negotiation is there ever a, a process is it in other words would and you've experienced this because you've worked on these budgets and and so on um but is it a matter of how much money can we pull out yes. of other yes. things um yes. is there ever an estimate of what is needed <laughs> well yes but then you get to reality you know so uh, the, the fiscal folks, um, you know, create a, a universe that says, okay, this is the, this is the, um, the amount of money that it will take to cover whatever the items are that you're dealing with. And then you start getting to, and this is where the negotiation comes in. Okay, this is, the administration says this is what we want. And then the legislative side at some point says, this is what we can produce in terms of dollars that are available or, you know, whatever measure you're trying to use to come up with the dollars. And um, you get right down to the final, the final part of this whole process is who can come up with the number of votes to get it past both houses. And, and of course, you, you, you want something that, I mean, you know, if it's... Uh, uh, if the governor's not on board, you know, you don't want to have something that gets vetoed, right? Well, unless they have, yeah. uh, you know, a, a strong enough uh, majority that it's veto-proof. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so I mean, and, and the, the best thing is, is if you could have, if, if it were a, a, a Democratic uh, House and, 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 and Senate, then you'd like to have some Republicans on board. And vice versa. I mean, that's that's in the best of all worlds. That if you if you could peel off, um, in this case, a few Democrats, so that it's it's essentially uh, veto proof. But you know, the old the old line is legislation is like making sausage. It's a messy process. Yeah, you may like yeah, the final yeah. product, but it's a messy process. Yeah. You don't want oh, to yeah. see how it's made. That's no. right. Well, the Michigan legislature approved a bill Thursday that would ensure about 800,000 statewide residents behind on their water bills won't see their water shut off. Senate Bill 241, sponsored by Senator Stephanie Chang, a Detroit uh, Democrat, is a moratorium on water shutoffs through March 31st of 2021 to assist Michiganders during the COVID-19 pandemic. It would also require public water suppliers to strive to determine which households lack water service and make best efforts to restore it. The Michigan House approved the bill 96 to 9 during its December 17th session. The Michigan Senate voted 30 to 8 in favor of it on December 10th. It now heads to uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer's desk for signature, which appears likely as the bill codifies one of her emergency executive orders invalidated by the Michigan Supreme Court in October. The legislation would prevent shutoffs for various communities across the state suffering from water insecurity. Um, 
according to uh, Cindy Roper of the National Resources uh, Defense Council, uh, in a report advocating for the bill's passage as the issue affects urban areas such as Detroit or Flint and more rural areas such as the Upper Peninsula. What's the difference if a moratorium on water shutoffs is implemented by the governor or the legislature? But they they should have to agree to make it a sign <laughs> so that one is not saying something that the other one is not because that could end up in the court. But the, Mayor Duggan of Detroit has already done that. This seems like cherry-picking. You know, the governor said, let's not shut people's water off at the same time we're asking them to wash their hands more. And, <laughs> but Duggan has already done that. I don't know whether you guys know this or not, but Duggan has done that already in Detroit. I, I, I don't know where it's who, who gets the credit or who gets the blame? I mean, if, but who, then, who gets but the then, credit for, for pulling it, and who gets the blame if there's financial problems? But clearly, the legislature was in favor of this, but it got shot yeah. down by the Supreme Court ruling in October as part of a package of things that were deemed unconstitutional. And, yeah. and so it's, it's like the legislature now is going, oops, except for that one. Yeah. Well, how did yeah. Mayor Duggan in Detroit get the authority to do that and the money, find the money to do that? He's already promised the people of Detroit that they don't have to worry about water shutoffs. He's challenging, you know, the the, the, the this whole controversy uh, about you know the the uh, legislature saying that we're, we're going to challenge the governor or the, the court ruling and and the like. But you know, and this is where you know this is what you um, you teach or used to teach in a lot of your classes, Paul. You know, the legislature has certain powers, and 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 the, and the executive uh, has yeah. certain powers. So this this is this is an attempt, and and, and it's working, <laughs> uh, where the, the legislature says, "Hey, you know, there's a reason why the governor would be given the power to act." And somebody alluded to this to act in in the instance of emergencies. And so, by the time you go through. Uh, the legislative process, whatever the emergency is, I mean, we've all gone to hell. So there's a reason why you give the executive certain legislative powers in an emergency. But, but the, the, the executive office has, has given legislative powers through its constitution, and all of those not named in the constitution are left for the legislature. But it's like in, I this case, in, in this case, go ahead. But I, 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 I was going to say I, I was struck by, I took a look at how many times the governor, any, any governor, had used executive powers recently, and there were a great many times, but nearly always there always were local snowstorms, floods, things like that, that did require immediate action of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. And they were very so short-term. It, it, they lasted for a few uh, days or a week. Right. <clears throat> Tom, what was the date? You, you alluded to a date uh, that um, the... Um, the action that the, the the court took, that what they struck down, this, this it was uh, in October. Yeah, but wasn't wasn't that originally um, promulgated like in eighteen something? Oh, oh, the um, uh, eighteen like eighteen thirty. I don't remember. But anyways, 
long time ago. No, there was there was a nineteen. There were two laws. Would one from nineteen seventy six laws? Yeah, right? nineteen forty five and nineteen seventy six. That's right. All right. That's okay. it. All right. I thought it was eighteen. Okay. But yeah. anyways, it's been a long time ago, and I, I it just uh, I don't in, in a, this environment of a pandemic. Why would why would you want to uh, uh, change the executive order? Uh, arrangement, I mean, even when lives are at stake, I just, to me, is just, um, you know, you're messing with folks' lives. I think to some degree the squabbling we've, as a nation, that we've done over this whole pandemic reflects the fact that, uh, reflects the difference between us and so many other countries that have got a much better record of, of uh lower infection rates and lower death rates and all that. You know, it's it's uh, so yeah. interesting and Paul, I've brought it's this up our culture before. In some ways. I've brought this yeah. up before and and we talked about it uh, a couple of times yeah. that in Japan the government is constitutionally forbidden from closing businesses. You know, but doing the culture is so different. Emergency closures and yet if public health officials come on radio and television and say, mask up, people just do it. Mm-hmm. If they yeah. suggest mm-hmm. that schools be closed, the school districts or the school administrations, <clears throat> they close the schools. But the government can't order them to do it, yet the people are willing to make those sacrifices for public health. Here, I think we've got a lot of Republicans in the legislature that are being hounded by business owners that are suffering, and, and, and maybe some unfairly. And so they're trying, to make, they're trying to take the power away from the governor and, and make it so that it's the legislature that responds in an emergency. But there's a timeline issue that needs to be addressed and that those laws attempted to address in 1945 right, and 1976. Right, right. Yeah, it, it seemed like the thrust of those initial laws in 45 and 76 were aimed at relatively short-term kind of things. And ideally, abstractly, there ought to be cooperation with the legislature. But in a partisan time, as I say, the... The, the way we've, we've been so divided politically here in this country reflects the, the sharp contrast of, of how we've handled this pandemic compared to so many other countries in the world. I mean, I'm struck by the fact a number of other countries have had, speaking mainly of Australia, New Zealand, Vietnam, um, Japan, dramatically lower numbers all the way around. They've just done a much better job than we have. Well, we've got, go ahead, Will, oh, go quickly. Ahead. No, no, I was just going to say real quick that there's one name that uh, history will reveal that uh, will certainly be accountable when it comes to the, the scenario that we're dealing with, and that's Trump. Uh, the, yeah. And I'm not saying him necessarily uh, personally, well, we've been... but his legacy will be about the fact that he set the table for a lot of this stuff that we're talking about. Well, we have to take a break here, um, and we've been picking on Lansing a little bit. Let's see if we can pick on Washington when we come back. Um, we'll be back with more Armchair Politics right after Hello, this. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. 
Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. And the Tom Sumner Program. What do comic books have to do with Susan B. Anthony, Stormy Daniels, and Congressman John Lewis? Find out New Year's Eve 2020 on the Tom Sumner Program. Author Mark Schulman talks about comic book biographies of Walt Disney and Susan B. Anthony. The creative team from Tidal Wave Productions talk about a new comic book series called Stormy Daniels' Space Force. Plus, former congressional aide Andrew Aiden talks about developing a three-part comic book series about the civil rights movement called March with Congressman John Lewis. The Tom Sumner Program continues our look back at 2020 with comic books for New Year's Eve, streaming live from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com, repeating online all day and night, simulcast on 92.1 FM in Flint at 9 a.m. and p.m. Happy New Year from the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues on this Christmas Eve Eve edition. And uh, this next piece uh, that I'm going to get into here, um, there have been some actions taken since uh, since I wrote it, um, but there are a couple of aspects of it that I want to get into and talk about, so I'll read it as is. You, you know, Paul, uh, Paul Rosicki always sends me an email the day before we do Armchair Politics with some bullet points on uh, things we might uh, talk about and he always uh, includes at the end and whatever else happens in the next 24 hours so this kind of falls into that uh, that disclaimer congressional leaders on friday failed to secure a long-awaited deal on a 900 billion dollar pandemic relief package but managed to narrowly avoid a government shutdown for now The House and Senate passed a two-day extension of government funding (laughs) to keep agencies operating until Sunday night. The White House announced just after 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday that President Donald Trump had signed the bill ensuring the government would stay open through the weekend. (laughs) The the move ratcheted up pressure on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to finalize a stimulus agreement that they have said for days they are on the cusp of reaching. Now lawmakers will stay in Washington over the weekend as Hill leaders continue to work with many rank-and-file members, rank-and-file, rank-and-file members growing increasingly frustrated and impatient over the lack of information about a major rescue package they have yet to see but expect to be voting on in just a matter of days. 
How long before Congress resorts to daily or hourly budget extensions to continue negotiations? <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking when you were reading that. We'll wait for 15-minute extensions periodically. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've talked about continuing resolutions for years. It's been years since an actual budget was passed. <laughs> well, when you when you can have a continuing resolution and you can get the same result, um, you know, and you don't have to bite the bullet on what the you know the the uh, the really tough decision is. I guess the the course of least least resistance is the continuing resolution. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, and this is where I'm concerned. I, I think that there's some. Um, ugly stuff going on here between the Republicans and Democrats, and I don't like it. Uh, that suggests to me that there's vengeance that's being sought here some kind of way, but I'll let you guys decide what I'm saying. Well, you know, but, in a larger uh, sense, one real problem uh, I don't here is like under, it. And it's yeah, I will say in a larger sense, one real problem here is this undermines confidence in the, in the government in general. Yes. I mean, the, yes. the public who, who doesn't follow this in great detail yeah. just shrugs their shoulders and says, oh, they don't know what they're doing. And that yeah. really does harm to a system in a larger way it, that comes across so many other areas. And, yeah. and you know, I, I regret that the president of the past authorized that 14 or 15 days to get, their order, to get things in order. That wasn't sufficient. So I I don't like the the looks of vengeance. Well, I thought it was I I thought it was silly when they when they passed a two week continuing resolution, and yeah. now they're down to keeping it open for the weekend. <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly. I mean oh. this this is how they're discharging that constitutional responsibility of managing the budget. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I do think the president still thinks that he was he was berated by the country and by politicians and stuff, and that now is surfacing, and he he may be trying to seek. Well, revenge. you know, I, I I feel bad for the president. I you know, not just this president, but any president, because you know they they really have to put themselves out there and and set themselves up for ridicule and consternation and so on. But with this particular president, a lot of it he brings on himself. I remember early on during the campaign when he was talking about, you know, when they attack me, I attack them. Well, I, you know, I think the president has found out that some people attack back. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering what, what are all the nighttime comedians going to do when Trump is finally gone? I mean, <laughs> he's, he's been their, their main father for the last four years. But, well, we but, but, but we say that at the we say that at the end of every presidential term. <laughs> what are the comedians going to do now? <laughs> yeah. Well, this guy's been just a gold mine for the late night uh, set. But you know, remember, I made the point. Uh, two points. One is that this guy has busted more political norms than any president in history, and it works in a bad way, and that the Republican Party is now known as the uh, Trump cult. And I, you know, I just put that well, back out there. I don't 
want to let that but in this uh, but in this particular piece now the president has you know further complicated these uh these negotiations because they did come to an agreement over the weekend um or, or within the last couple of days and right. and they sent it to the president and he is he, I don't think he's actually vetoed it, but he has refused to sign it, and he's trying to send it back to them uh, to consider a greater dollar amount for individuals. And right. that makes sense to me. That makes sense. I think With it makes sense to a lot of people. Yeah. 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 It, 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 it makes, here it is, guys. It makes sense if. He had not been acting like an idiot early on. No, that has nothing to do with this is involved. Hold on, just a and gotten involved in the process. Remember, this process has been going on, and what has he been doing? He's been out here uh, talking all of this crazy talk about you know the the election was stolen. The process has been going on. Now, all of a sudden, the legislative partners they come to an agreement. Send it to him. He says, uh, no, I don't want $600 for an individual. I want uh, $2,000. Well, that's that's but, what you but, do. That's what the process is about early on. Yeah, but, do it now. But, but there are other analysis that have been taken by college professors and uh, economists and so on and so forth. And they say, hey, why are we sending so much money overseas to support other countries and their interests? Why don't we take that $900 billion divided by the population, 300 million, and it comes out to $1,000 or whatever it is per person, rather than give the $600, as Pelosi says, is no money at all. But why See, not I, don't, them- I don't disagree. I don't disagree with okay. that. All I'm saying is that in terms of the process, I agree but with you're you. you're sidetracking the point. No, the point is now. That was yesterday. That was yesterday. This is now. Now. Hey, since look, since no, the election, no. Trump has been able to offer so many issues. He's been basically golfing and whining about the election. Right. That's about all he's done since November. Well, that was then, and this is now. Well, as as Richard, as Richard Nixon might have said, we soon won't have Donald Trump to kick around anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, uh, you know, I'm trying to support you guys' side, uh, but I can't because um, because I think that we have new opportunities to change the direction of where we are, and we are fighting that too. But then, and here's the t- but there's this omnibus obsession in Congress that they can't pass anything without linking it to something else. Yeah. Um, I understand holding off on the budget to include money that would be allocated for pandemic relief. That that makes sense. But most of the time, and, and the pandemic relief itself, three months ago, I was saying, why don't they just go in and vote to give everybody 1200 bucks and then worry about all the other stuff? Why yeah. does it have to be a whole package? It's a relief package. And... You know, yeah, businesses need help. Yes, the healthcare industry um, and and the professionals, the people on the front line, need help. But you know, let's get those checks cut, and then keep fighting the good fight. Well, yeah, but, but the- Tom, Tom, you you know the you know the answer to to your to your question that 
you know, this is a part of the culture. And and in one sense, it does make some sense. If you try to do these actions one at a time, you never get it done. And so you do it in an omnibus uh, form because, I mean, part of it is, like, for instance, I think this is the biggest... This is the biggest bill that's ever been passed in terms of the number of pages or something. Uh, but a part of it is, you know, the average person isn't going to go through and look through. I mean, just let's be real honest. The average person and not and not so average person aren't going to go through and look through. You're only talking about maybe one percent, two percent of the folks who are actually going to ever uh, look through this this entire uh, legislation. But there's there's also some economy. You're trying to get this stuff done in, in a package, politically. You just, you just, when you're trying to pull, couple together two caucuses that typically are at each other's throat, the omnibus pack, uh, passage uh, method is probably the best way to go. And so it's a way of gathering votes. I mean, to say, if, uh, I'll include support for your program back <laughs> yeah. in their home, home district as long as you come on board for my bill. Uh, yeah, I, right. I think right. that's the way, yeah. Yeah, the, the negotiations aren't so much uh, about how much we can spend and, and, and all of that as it is, what can I get in this for my vote? Right. But, but, what, but <laughs> the way in which the country is suffering now... We need all of the money to go to COVID relief and the relief of businesses who are suffering, not to other countries now. We'll figure out that later, but the priority thing is to do is take care of the Americans first. Well, moving on, the, ex- the expectation that President Donald Trump will issue a flurry of pardons in his final days in office has sparked a contentious discussion among congressional Republicans over whether former National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden deserves one. Snowden, who has been living in exile in Russia for several years now, is accused of espionage and theft of government property in the United States after he leaked American intelligence secrets in 2013. If he returns home, Snowden could face a decades-long prison sentence. In recent days, some Republicans have publicly split over whether Snowden is a traitor or a whistleblower illustrating the ideological divide between lawmakers who vigorously defend the surveillance state legacy of George W. Bush and Trump acolytes who harbor suspicions about the so-called deep state and what they see as its infringement on civil liberties. Adding to the urgency is the unlikelihood that the incoming Biden administration would grant Snowden a pardon despite support from some Democrats and high-profile human rights groups. Should Snowden be pardoned? Is he a traitor or a whistleblower? Well, I don't remember all the details uh, now, but I, I knew that there was a uh, there was a lot of uh, partisan issues on both sides that were re- really compelling. So right now, I'm not in a position to say one way or the other. I'll have to leave that to people who are closer to it. His his case is that you know while. Uh, Working as a, a some kind of a, a computer programmer or something uh, for the NSA, he uh, discovered and became um, aware of the level to which the government was conducting uh, surveillance on people and yeah. and collecting 
private information secretly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was, and, mm-hmm. and this was all top secret information, information he was not um, supposed to disclose, <laughs> but he, f- he felt that See. this was such an invasion of people's privacy that he felt compelled basically to leak it to say hey look you guys the government is watching you 1984 yeah exactly yeah. and uh, well go ahead I, Wood. you know i don't know i'm i'm sort of um with uh, henry on this i i really don't know because it never i was never shocked about it, you know what he revealed remember the patriot act and even before the patriot act uh, during uh, Hoover's uh, uh, reign right. of terror. I, I mean, yeah. I, so none of this stuff, I was never surprised. I, you know, it was great that, that he had some actual hard evidence and the like, but was I surprised? I mean, more recently, we had the Patriot Act, and it said, the Patriot Act said in, in very clear terms, you know, we're going to we have the power to spy, as opposed to, during the Hoover era, uh, you know, there was denial, and even back further, there was denial that, you know, that there was just widespread spying on the um, average citizen. You know, the, the interesting thing is, and I've brought this up many times, is there is a generation of people now, largely because of social media, that don't have the, the same expectation of privacy would that you or Henry or Paul or, or I might. Um, right. You know, I, it's almost as if they really didn't need to jump through a bunch of hoops to spy on people. All they had to do was get a Facebook account. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. you find there. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, I'm kind of watching the time here because there's, there's a lot going on. And uh, let's see, what do we want to talk about? Um, well, maybe I can... Well, let's let's do the Supreme Court first. I usually leave them for last. The Supreme Court on Thursday denied a request from a religious school in Kentucky to block regulations that temporarily restrict in-person instruction in elementary, middle, and upper schools in the state due to COVID-19. The court's unsigned order is the most recent to come from the justices dealing with religious groups that are challenging COVID-19 restrictions as a violation of First Amendment rights, although it is the first dealing with a school. In other recent orders, the court had sided with houses of worship and against state officials. Here, the court noted that the state's regulation expires in the coming days, and that there is no indication that it will be renewed. The court said that because of the timing and impending expiration of the order, it would deny the request to block it, but said the school could come back if a new order is issued next year. Justices Neil Gorsuch and Samuel Alito dissented, saying that the executive order from Kentucky Democratic Governor Andy Bashir resulted in unconstitutional discrimination against religion. Is there religious discrimination if all schools are being similar, similarly affected by pandemic-related closures? I don't think so. I, guess, again, I don't I think, think so either. Schools are I subject think... to normal civil laws. I mean, if a, a religious school has got to have, uh, you know, fire escapes and 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 uh, other 
normal things that any public building has got to have, so they're subject to traditional civil laws. I don't think the courts have ever found that to be a violation of the First Amendment. Um, now, they could, they could rule against, you know, pandemic-related closures, but I don't think there's religious discrimination going on here. I think uh, yeah, Gorsuch you, and Alito are out to lunch. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you don't like any, any closures, fine, but it, uh, if you're going to close all schools, so, like I say, it's a, it's a traditional civil law that applies to everybody, and even and the courts have never held that there was that exception that gave religion exemption from, from normal civil laws and civil regulations. And I think there's a case to be made against government, you know, even in a pandemic emergency, getting involved in day-to-day operations of businesses, of schools, you know, and government meetings and court proceedings and so on. You know, there's a case to be made for that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this this notion that, that somehow uh, parochial schools are being picked on, just I don't think it flies. I'm, yeah, I'm in terms of, in terms of zoning regulations or, or, or safety regulations, those apply to all kind of public buildings, including religious buildings of one, schools or even churches, to some degree that they uh, they apply. But I think this is specifically uh, detailed uh, to the right of worship. And somehow they've got that convoluted with the buildings and all of the other ongoing activities around it. And you're right, the government does have some input to protect um, the quality of life in communities so that the community benefits uh, to the maximum degree possible. So everybody has to walk the line. But I, I do think that they, when they refer to worship, then... That's a different kind of an animal. Now, we've only got about two minutes left till we go to the break, but I did want to squeeze in, if I can. It's actually two pieces. I'm going to try and combine them and do the lightning round version. But um, the uh, President Donald Trump on Saturday downplayed a massive cyber attack on U.S. federal government agencies, contradicting Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's public remarks, linking the hatch or the hack to uh, Russia. And at the same time, the Trump administration has informed lawmakers of its plan to shutter its two remaining consulates in Russia. And without going into to all of the details, um, do you think these closures might hint that there's cyber retaliation by the U.S. against Russia that we may <laughs> never hear about? Yeah, it's entirely possible. We yeah. can be sneaky, too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought, oh man, when they start closing when they start closing down American assets in Russia, I would not want to be a Russian with a computer. <laughs> True. True. But we won't ever hear about that. No. No, I don't think so. Cuz the the US won't give up, you know, its its secret yeah. strategies and Russia won't fess up to any weakness. Having said that, though, I'm still struck by by Trump's silence on the whole uh, whole uh, hacking issue. Scarcely a word out of him. What appears to be a very very serious incident. But you know, I I really think that uh, 
tampering with the relationship of Russia and the United States is a great thing that Americans uh, should reconsider. Uh, don't drive any any uh, causes to conflict. Uh, we need to walk slowly with a big stick, I guess. Well, that's a that's a good note to end on because we have to take a short break here. But when we come back, we'll uh, you know although this has the uh, uh, some of the uh, characteristics of a conspiracy theory. It's not actually an X-File, but we will come back with some actual X-Files after we take a short break. Let our broadcast partners uh, squeeze in here. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. <laughs> They say singing can help you remember things, so here's some tips for parents out there during these tough times. Number one. Make sure your kids wash their hands for 20 seconds after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside. Virtual play dates, social and physical distancing can help save lives. Tell them they're safe and show your love and pride. Yes, we'll get through this together. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Tom Sumner program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. If you have a knack for sales and fundraising and would like to become a valued member of a fun team, you could be a good fit for the Tom Sumner program. Help us develop the underwriters needed to continue to grow our brand. Write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com. The Tom Sumner program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. 
with support from grants, donations, and advertisers. East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Hope back once again to tell you it's better to have Pepsi than flowing over your teeth now than to have water running under your bridge later. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com oh, I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back to the final segment of today's uh, Christmas Eve Eve edition of the Tom Sumner Program and uh, armchair politics. This is my favorite segment where we do those weird and wacky uh, stories we call the X-Files. St. Peter's Square in the Vatican has hosted a few unorthodox nativity scenes over the years, but this season's entry looks like it came from outer space. The futuristic ceramic uh, which uh, display which includes an astronaut and a character reminiscent of Darth Vader from Star Wars, has received so many terrible reviews that if it were a Broadway play, it probably would have closed on opening night. (laughs) Some social media users, perhaps in keeping with the prevailing mood of 2020, called it disturbing or lacking reassurance. Others were more scathing. (laughs) The Vatican uses a different nativity scene each year, usually donated by towns or artists. This year's modernist, larger-than-life display, which has appeared at various venues, was made by students and teachers in Castelli, an Italian town famous for ceramics, between 1865 and 1975. One person on social media responded by posting a picture showing that that figure planting a Vatican flag on the moon. Another showed Darth Vader (laughs) (laughs) asking for directions to St. Peter's Square. Uh, What pop culture adaptations of the nativity would you like to see at the Vatican? (laughs) I'm not sure where to start with that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you got me. I didn't, I, I thought, I was surprised really to find out that the Vatican, the Vatican does these pop culture displays. 
or yeah, just different displays. I, I would think of all places for a traditional nativity scene, it would be at the Vatican. I was but it's an illusion. surprised so, to hear that. The Vatican, like the uh, like America, the United States, is trying to consider the word inclusion and put mm. up symbols that indicate that. And it's the right thing to do. Because the world mm. is so different. And so many people around the world are Catholics. Yeah. Well, on the other side of the coin, a Michigan man who sued his parents for throwing out his prized pornography collection <laughs> is now in line to collect a hefty reimbursement from them. In a ruling handed down Wednesday by U.S. District Judge Paul Maloney, Beth and Paul Working will have to pay their son David as much as $75,000 for destroying the porn. David Working won a summary judgment in the case and he and his parents have until mid-February to file written submissions on the damage according to uh, MLive.com. In his lawsuit, the younger Working valued the property at an estimated $25,000, but his attorney, Miles Greengard, told the outlet that we have asked the court for uh, treble damages, which we believe are warranted given the wanton destruction of the property. He added, this was a collection of often irreplaceable items and property. <laughs> is, mom, is mom and dad on public assistance? <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know, but I, I couldn't help wondering, <laughs> where would you go to find an appraiser for items and or collections yeah, of pornography? What, what, yeah, 25. But, but it's going to be one heck of a porn collection. The amount of the fine, $75,000, where would people who are retired find that money? Well, hey. <laughs> and, he, you he, know, who... He knows it's probably there. And who needs $25,000 worth of pornography? Yeah, like I say, what kind of collection has this guy got? <laughs> does this guy have a job? You know? Yeah. <laughs> does he have time for anything else? Um, well, it's, it, it, it probably, if it had anything to do with children, he's in mm. doo-doo. That's another story there, yeah. 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 And that, that oftentimes by people who collect that kind of stuff do include some places where he's not meeting the standard. He'd better let this go. Well, <clears throat> moving on. That, that story actually should have started with a Florida man. But That's unfortunately, right. it was true. a Michigan man. Um, however, we do turn to Florida now. A metallic structure that appeared via unknown circumstances outside a Florida bar is drawing comparisons to the mysterious monoliths that popped up around the globe. The pierced cider bar in uh, Fort Pierce posted uh, photos to Facebook of the 10-foot tall metal monolith that was first spotted outside the business last Wednesday morning. The business said security camera footage failed to record the structure's installation. The object bears a resemblance to the monoliths that have been spotted in various locations around the globe after the first was discovered in November in the Utah desert. The bar put tape around the Fort Pierce monolith, uh, monolith to keep the public at a safe distance. The Fort, Pier uh, Fort Pierce Police Department said investigators have no information about the object. Ooh. You know, it takes a big crane to lift something of metal. 
How they did that. This had to be aliens because they didn't get it on the security footage. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) These things are popping up all over the place. And for the reason you just mentioned, Henry, my question is, is this the same monolith moving from place to place? And if not, can several still be called monoliths? That's right. Yeah, if you got if you got them all over the, all over the world. Well, yeah. guys, the truth is stranger than fiction, quote unquote. Yeah. Well, appara- yeah. apparently it's out well, there. We just don't seem to be able to find it. <laughs> right. Did anybody see that Facebook cartoon where they had a monolith of uh, stacks of paper and they said, oh, that's all those missing Trump votes? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. And, and, and it would be the guy with, uh, with all the Dewey ballots in the trunk of his car to, that's to right. bring that up. <laughs> anyway, that uh, wraps it up for today's edition of Armchair Politics, but I... Uh, but I do want to share my my thanks to uh, to you, Paul uh, Paul Rosicki, and to uh, Henry Hatter, our roundtable regulars. Thank you, guys. Merry Christmas! Yeah, it's great to be here. And Woodrell, thank you for joining us this week. Absolutely enjoyed it, and uh, Merry Christmas to you guys and to your families. And uh, and Happy New Year! And as I mentioned uh, earlier in the show. Uh, we will be back next Wednesday with a look back at 2020 through the uh, Armchair Politics uh, Telescope with uh, Paul and Henry returning. And uh, the three of us will look back at all of, the, you know, you, you'd think it would be all COVID-19, but it's not. And uh, I have uh, several special shows coming up looking back at 2020. And one that I haven't promoted very much is... Um, Christmas Day, not tomorrow, Christmas Eve, it's all Christmas music, and our Christmas music is better than everybody else's because it's local. But there you uh, go. it's an all Christmas music edition of the show, and it, it's um, a re- uh, an encore, actually, of the same show I did for Thanksgiving Day, kicking off the holiday season. Um, but uh, you can literally... Since it repeats online all day, you can literally use it as your Christmas Eve soundtrack. And there are some great performances of old classic, uh, classic uh, Christmas songs and, and some interesting new ones, too. In fact, uh, I have one. I don't think it's included in uh, tomorrow's uh, playback, but um, one that I just picked up called Happy COVID Christmas. And it's by, it's by a local artist, and it's quite good. Um, but uh, on on Friday, Christmas Day, it's kind of a kind of a memorial as we uh, as we look back at. Uh, I think that's Henry calling back in. Henry, are you back with us? Yes, I am. I somehow it just dropped out. I'm okay. Sorry. Well, I was just uh, thanking everybody and uh, letting people know about this uh, special on Christmas Day. With Brendan Beery and I, uh, right after um, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, we did a show about RBG and her legacy. And that's going to be part of the show. And then um, a couple of people who passed away in 2020 that that were very honored guests on uh, this program. And we're going to hear interviews with comic legend Carl Reiner, and uh, also uh, the Grand Dame of Suspense, Mary Higgins Clark. 
and so those will play on Christmas Day. Then we've got our 2020 uh, specials and next Wednesday armchair politics looks back at 2020 but thank you all and uh, Merry Christmas and uh, Happy Merry New Christmas. Year Merry Christmas Paul and, and the Mayor Merry Christmas, Henry. thank you and your spouses we want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.